Deb, thank you very much for being on the podcast. We're going to talk about HR acuity today, but to start, tell us about your background and the story of the company. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. So how did this all start? It was a little bit accidental starting. Uh, for many years, I was an HR professional who happened to do a lot of workplace investigations. I dealt with employee relations issues. One of those things that the more you do them, the better you got at them and the better that you get at them, your company starts handling, handing you the more complex cases. You kind of become the go-to person. And so while I love that aspect of my job, I never really wanted to continue to rise in corporate America. Um, so it made sense that I would go out on my own. And when I did, HR Acuity was to be a provider of third-party workplace investigations. So in 2006, that's how the company started, strictly a service provider, no thought of technology. And then I started going out to clients, to my network to say, hey, we're here to do investigations. And as we started talking, I started realizing this problem that I knew existed from my own experience, that there was really no way to do investigations, no one way. It was very disparate. People kind of brought their own way to do it. There was no consistency. And, and that was a problem. There was no consistency. There was also a lot of information that was being left. There was no way to aggregate data to understand if investigations were done right, done wrong. And I decided there was an opportunity there. So at one point I was talking with AOL about training and investigations, and they started asking me about my process for investigations. And I'd kind of been thinking about what I was going to do. So I said to them, all right, I'm thinking of licensing my technology. Or I'm working on licensing my technology. And I had no idea what I was going to do. So then when I went home, because they were quite interested, I thought, well, I can't license them what I have. It's sort of word-based. They're AOL. They don't use paper. I have to make some type of a web-based tool. Um, and just so you know, I had no technology background at all. My technology of choice was PowerPoint. That's what I was good at. I didn't have very good assistance throughout my career. So I got really good at PowerPoint. So I literally sat down and opened my PowerPoint and I drew a login screen. And then I knew that I would go to some type of a dashboard and I just kept going and kind of, you know, creating my process in PowerPoint and before I know it, I had about 50 screens and the process was kind of there. And I got uh, HR leaders, lawyers all together around my dining room table. I served them a tray of sushi. I put my son's, I think it was called like a Zoom box, which basically projected my computer on, on the, you know, the dining room wall. And I showed them this technology that I had built and they were impressed. And they said, we think you need it. We think this is something there. There's nothing like this out there. So I decided like I often do to jump in kind of the deep end. I knew I had a little bit of money that was saved. Uh, I didn't think it would much take much time. And I thought, well, why not? And there we were off to the races. What do you actually do? How would I describe the solution that HR Acuity offers. Yeah. So HR Acuity's mission is to create safe and better workplaces. So how do we do that? We have the only technology platform that is specifically built for employee relations and investigations management. So organizations implement HR Acuity to document day-to-day -day employee issues such as performance concerns or policy violations 
and to conduct compliant and thorough investigations when there's allegations of workplace misconduct, such as harassment or discrimination. And through that consistent best practice processes and use and data analytics, the organizations then can then proactively uncover trends or bias in the workplace, ensure trusted experiences for their team members, and importantly, protect their brand from reputation-damaging headlines. So it's obviously our software, but was it always SaaS? Early on, one of my investors who worked at Red Hat at the time said to me, you know, you should do SaaS. And I was like, what's SaaS? Remember, I have no technology background. I didn't have any idea what that was. But I did some research and, and we went with it. That seemed to be up and coming. And it's interesting how I think back to early on our discussions with a lot of prospects about whether or not we would install our solution behind their firewall. And thankfully we held firm. We never went that way. We developed it as a SaaS platform and uh, it doesn't surprise you. We really never have those conversations today. The solutions offers software that monitors the employee conduct, right? It's one, one of the things. Mm -hmm. How has it evolved over time? Especially we've had the Me Too movement, we've had BLM movement. Has the need arise for this? It's definitely changed. It's a great question. When I started, first of all, we launched in the middle of a recession. So that was interesting in some respects. Uh, some respects it was helpful because there's actually a direct correlation between unemployment and EEOC claims. So if you think about it, unemployment goes up, claims to the EEOC also rise. So while I knew that there was a need as a practitioner, employee relations was still very transactional, very decentralized. There was no consistency and therefore no ability to leverage data, which to me was a huge opportunity. I mean, these are your human resources, your most expensive resources, yet you aren't tracking and identifying their behaviors or their deviations from the norm, kind of what's expected from them. And in a world where data is driving everything, this is a big miss for organizations. But early on, I still needed to find people that got it because they weren't looking for it. No one was really paying attention to this part of the organization or this part of HR. And I was fortunate to find early adopters. And as a result, got some really great clients that were ahead of the curve of ADP, LinkedIn, Bloomberg. But you know, the world's very different, as you mentioned, than it was in 2009 when we launched. A lot has changed. And that has certainly helped our trajectory of our business and the need for it. Like you said, Big change in 2016, you mentioned the Me Too movement. I think of Susan Fowler's blog about her time at Uber as really a big turning point for us. And that really gained momentum and has only continued to expand. You know, if you think about what's happening now, every CEO is putting out on LinkedIn or in social media, their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, their commitment to the Black Lives Matter movement, to the social justice reform. And how can you make those commitments if you don't know the impact of the behaviors of your employees or the actions taken in your organization to determine if they in themselves are equitable. How do you know, for example, if the managers across your organization are delivering, for example, written warnings proportionately to your black and brown employees versus your white employees? So if you have more than a thousand employees, say, you need technology for that. If you can't answer those questions, then there is a gap. And if you're serious about driving change and equity in your workplace, you need these insights and you need HR acuity. Obviously, there is more interest in this subject now. 
but how did it affect your sales? Did it increase the inbound interest or when your people go outbound, it's easier for them to describe the need for this software? It's both. I mean, we're absolutely seeing the, the momentum, uh, both in our outbound outreach, but also inbound. I mean, I can't even tell you how many RFPs my sales team is dealing with right at this moment. So they're looking for solutions. They're realizing that either doing nothing or Excel isn't going to work. Many companies have tried to kind of jury rig traditional case management solutions that they use for ticketing or they use for IT or they use for help desks to do this kind of work and realizing quite frankly, you can't do this type of work that's dealing with such sensitive issues with your employees where trust is so important with that type of a software solution. And when I think about employee relations, I also think about it's something that is done in person, right? So now mm. we had COVID and people are not necessarily in the same room and can misbehave. Did you see less interest in your software during the COVID Interesting. I think when COVID hit a year ago, none of us knew what to expect, but it impacted our clients and our prospects from day one. I mean, all of employer relations, all of HR, they basically had to drop everything and deal with COVID related incidents. And they were running without a playbook of any sort. You know, no one had done this before. And when it came to documentation, that became critical. So what happened on a Tuesday with one employee who maybe couldn't work or was sick or was exposed and how you dealt with them might be very different the next week with a similar situation because maybe the Department of Labor has now issued regulations or they've changed something. So organizations recognize they needed to document things immediately. Now people were working from home. How are we keeping in touch with that? How are we making sure that managers could work with them, could document what was happening? They really became the front line very much. So I've read how like the CFO was the front line during the financial crisis of 2008. Now the chief HR officer and the HR professionals became the front line during COVID. So we had to think about how we were going to respond as well. So we did it in two ways. First of all, a lot of our prospects weren't really that interested in buying software, right? They had other things to worry about, I would say, in Q2. So we supported them through our community. We have a very large employer relations leader community. They were all dealing with this at the same time. So we gave them help. We did surveys. We offered shared information so they could see what each other was doing, really supported the community as a whole. We also very quickly pivoted and started offering HR Acuity for free. Any organization could come and we'd get you up in about 24 to 48 hours on an instance of HR Acuity to use for documenting your COVID-related issues. We also offered free user licenses for some of our clients so that they would have the tools that they needed. Now, consequently, we've converted many of those over to paying customers, but really we just wanted to do something to support people during this really unprecedented times. And who are your typical customers? Are they enterprise, small businesses? Yeah, typically our clients start at about a thousand employees. If they're smaller than that, they're typically fast growing. So for example, some of the listeners might know Magnolia, which is the Chip and Joanna Gaines. There's a, there's a show on TV. They have a big enterprise down in Waco, Texas. They're a smaller but fast growing organization. On the other end, we have mid-market like Sheets or Twilio, and then very large enterprises. I mentioned ADP and LinkedIn, uh, Lyft, MasterCard, Qualcomm, Verizon, Adobe. We're across every industry. And what's really exciting when we look at our client list 
is that we really think we could name a leader in each industry as one of our clients. Tell me a little bit about the pricing model. How do you charge the clients? Is it per seat, per module? So when I started HR Acuity, I felt very strongly that we should price based upon the number of employees in an organization. So if you have X number of employees, X dollars per employee, and then you'd get unlimited HR licenses. And the reason I felt so strongly about this, and I still do today, is if you want to have data that you can use, you need to make sure that everybody has the tool available to them. If you just pick and choose because a user license, well, we can only afford so many, the data is not going to be helpful. And while the process consistency is a value, really understanding what's going on in your organization is just the game changer. So that is how we still price. We price our enterprise model like that. We have, I have to say, procurement doesn't like that model because they typically don't see it. So we flexed a little bit. So we have a professional model, which has great features, but not as many as our enterprise. And we do those on a per seat basis as well. I'm wondering about the stickiness of this software because everybody says they're interested in this. They might subscribe, but how long they actually commit to it? Can you provide some retention numbers, the gross and net, if it's not a secret? Uh, well, I can't provide exact ones, but we are very fortunate. We rarely lose our customers. Our gross revenue retention is near 100%. And our net revenue retention is comfortably over 100%. And I attribute that to a couple of things. You know, I grew up and I spent years being on the receiving end, the user end of really terrible HR technology that clearly was not developed by anyone that had ever done anything remotely like what, what I had to do each day, right? Clearly some engineers went into a room and tried to figure out how to do our jobs. But HR Acuity is practitioner developed, it's purpose built, it's developed, meaning we truly understand that the people using our product are doing day to day, we understand what's important to them. And we continue through both our employer relations community that we've built and our clients, we continue to listen to their needs, to see what's coming, maybe even before they see it and think about how technology can solve some of their challenges. And secondly, sort of similar, but I also know what it's like not to have a good experience with technology companies as a user. So from very early on, our company culture and our values emphasize treating our clients and everyone we work with truly as partners. And I think that's really made a difference in the success of the company. How big is the team? So right now we are, you know, it's funny, I'm going to kind of hedge on this, but we're around 60 team members. We're growing very quickly. So we're hiring, I'm in the last phases of a VP of marketing research. We have a director of engineering position, but growing very quickly. And what's the company structure? Right now, I think it's fairly typical. Um, it took us time to build that out. You know, it's hard when you start a company of one, especially when you're bootstrapping, which I did early on, to know when it's time to really formalize the company organizational structure and to be in a place where you can afford to do that or to start growing it. So my um, first hire was a salesperson in 2009, which obviously makes sense. She and I were doing whatever we could together, very scrappy, uh, trying different tactics, anything to get people to listen to what we had built. And then I was slowly able to build and add resources here and there. You know, one of the things you hear as an entrepreneur is that your organization is going to change when you hit different milestones. You know, zero to one million is going to look very different than one million to five million and so on. We've been pretty textbook in that regard. You know, after sales, 
we needed some more marketing. So, you know, first we brought in some agency help without hiring resources. Then eventually we hired a VP of marketing. And again, now we're looking for a new VP uh, for tech and development. I initially relied heavily on outsourced resources. We're very fortunate to have a great partner firm, Chinoa Information, uh, who we've been working with for years. But I went, I think it was 2017, I went to the Sastra conference. Uh, I was in San Francisco and I was listening to all the seminars from you know the big SaaS companies on what you should and shouldn't be doing. And my big epiphany, my big takeaway while I was there was that I was a tech company without a tech lead. And so that's what I got out of that conference. And I hired my first and current CTO later that summer. So things take time. Product is the same thing. For a while, product was kind of a game of hot potato. We all kind of played a role in it. I, by default, was really the product leader. It was my baby. But that we knew, or I knew, couldn't scale. So we brought on a product team, really excited about our new CPO that joined us this past fall. Customer success, very similar story. One of my very early employees, employee number three, started with me doing implementations part-time and grew to be my VP of customer success. But that also has recently evolved. We saw such growth last year that I had to make a the strategic decision to separate out customer success which at the time included implementation and professional services into two functions. So, you know, I tell my team now, I just, I just had a new hire lunch in today where we had a lot of new hires and I had a virtual lunch with them. And what I tell them and, and what we tell people or what I tell them when I interview people is that the HRQD org structure will look different at least every 12 months. And if that stresses you out, if you want to know what your role is going to be, if you need to know what title you're going to get next, this is not the place for you. But if that makes you really excited because it means opportunity, then welcome aboard. You're going to do just great. You mentioned that you experienced high growth last year or two. What caused that growth? It's a couple of things. The environment, right? The Me Too movement, all the things we talked about really has kind of elevated the conversation. Employee relations has truly become strategic. And so when you start to look at things strategically, you start to look at data, you want to have insights and stories to tell. And if you don't have the structure, if you don't have the technology to support it, you need to go looking for it. I mean, the other thing, quite frankly, is we took on investment. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You mentioned earlier that you were bootstrapped, but then it seemed like you received investment. Walk me through the process. First, decision-making to take the investment. And second, how did you choose investors? And I'm trying to remember if it was 2015 or 2014. I was working with someone who told me that I should go get some money. So he helped me put together a deck. He put together all these meetings for me. And off we went to the races, you know, going meeting after meeting. The problem with that was I didn't believe the story. And so when I looked at it, I didn't truly believe that if I got X amount of dollars, that it would, you know, expand my business by whatever percentage we put on there. So that was one thing. And that was problematic because I wasn't willing to give up a portion of my company for something that I didn't believe that I could achieve, didn't really have a heart into. I also didn't like the people that I was meeting. <laughs> I don't want to say stereotypical VCs, but 
they sort of were. And again, you know, this is my baby. I'm passionate about it. And I want to make sure that the people that I work with are people that understand me, understand our vision and want to be part of it with me. I also found out that uh, fundraising is extremely time consuming and I didn't have a lot of resources then. So while I was out going to all these meetings, I was not running my business and I just had to stop and just say, you know what, I got to go get more customers. So, you know, I continued along the path. We were growing at a pretty good clip, not hockey stick growth, but fairly well. We had some great clients. And then in 2018, one of my longtime advisors. His name is Steve Schlesinger. Great guy. I'm so glad he's been with me on this journey. He sat me down, invited me to lunch. He said, I want to invest in your company. I think you need capital and I'm going to put together an angel round and I want to invest. And so I said, well, Steve, that's great. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Let me go back and let me think about it. So I went back to, to the financials. I just still remember this because he was not happy with me because weeks later, longer than it took, I went back and I said, Steve, you know, thanks very much, but no, thanks. I'm good. I think he was shocked. And then, you know, a week or two later, he called me back and he's a very good friend. He's been partner with me all along. He's like, you need to rethink this. You need money. I don't want to see you undercapitalize and lose the momentum. It's a time you need the money. And so we talked about it and I agreed so he did lead the round. We did an angel round in 2018. And I recognized very quickly that this isn't so bad. You know, I could make different types of hires. We could take different types of risks. The world continued to change. We started to kind of see this trajectory. And I started thinking, you know, do I need more? Maybe it is time for me to take on more money. And at this time I was getting emails daily from investors who were just willing to open their checkbooks or so they said in the emails. And I would speak to them every now and then. And along the way, I spoke to Steve and Nate. I think I just spoke to Steve on the phone at Growth Street Partners. And you've actually interviewed him on your show. And it's a great episode. If anybody wants to listen to it, give it a plug there. Um, I talked to him on the phone and I really liked him. They were different because it wasn't kind of a low level associate calling me who probably never worked anywhere in their life. Um, they were the partners. They had experience and we had a great conversation, but I wasn't interested. I think I just gotten the angel round and, and didn't need any money. Didn't think I needed any money. They were coming out to New Jersey at some point, said we should have coffee. I agreed. And then I blew them off. So, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind. And in February of 2019, kind of when I was thinking about, do I need money? Do I not need money? I was in San Francisco. We're doing and continue to do a lot with tech companies. And I was visiting Lyft. They were a prospect at the time. And as I was going through their office complex, I noticed a door that said Growth Street Partners. And I thought, oh, I think those are the guys I talked to. So I knocked on the door. Nobody answered. It was locked. They were probably out playing ping pong or something. I sent Steve an email and said I was in the neighborhood. And he wrote me back and said, look, next time you're in town, stop by. We'll have some coffee. Fast forward to July, back in California, back visiting Lyft in the same office complex. They were now a client. And I told Steve I was going to be there. And he said, hey, come by, we'll have coffee. So I was not thinking fundraising from them. And, and the reason I will kind of share with you that's the case is in my mind, for some reason, we'd outgrown them. I don't know why, but just for some reason. 
But I really wasn't thinking about it because on that trip, I brought with me my SVP of sales. She had actually not even started working for us yet. She was starting in a couple of weeks, but I was going on this trip. I was meeting so many clients and prospects. It was a great opportunity. She joined me on the trip and I said, hey, you know what? We're going to stop by. We're going to have coffee with these two guys. They're with an investment company, but it's just really good to network, get to know them. I mean, who would do that if they were actually looking for money? So anyways, we had a great, we had a really good meeting. I, I just continue to enjoy them to like, really think that they had the best interest in our company and that they would be really helpful. And we started the process of doing due diligence and, and going down the path. And we finally closed the round in December of 2019. And it's been great. I mean, the money has really opened up our ability to hire great talent. I think people look at your business differently when you have institutional investors. It frees us up to be bold and being bold is one of our values and one of my favorite values. It lets us kind of just step out and take some risks that we couldn't have before. And more than the money, it's really provided us with tremendous resources. So Growth Street Partners is growth equity, which is sort of, as you know, sitting somewhere between VC dollars and PE funds, right? Yeah, this they, sounds like a pitch now. Are they paying you to say all No, the they're not. Like they're not. They're not. Okay, no, no. let's continue. Right, so, so they invested, because <laughs> I didn't know what growth equity was going in. I didn't know the difference, right? But in growth equity, they invest in fewer companies, but they also give you operating resources to really help you grow. They're really invested in your success and they know how to scale the business. So um, that's been great. They let me run my business. They don't tell me what to do, but they give me the expertise that I need when it's there. And it's been a really great combination. I have to say, people ask me often about my investors and I just sort of smile because I they've been great. What I tend to say to them is that a year into the investment, the experience has been kind of totally as advertised. So yeah, no, I, I, maybe it is an advertisement. It's been, it's been going well. And I'm glad I, I would just say as an entrepreneur, I'm glad I made the decision. I heard so many times, don't take VC money, hold out as long as you can hold on to your company. And that wasn't the right decision for us. The right decision was to take money with the right people. So what's a long vision for the company? So my vision for the company has really evolved since I started quite a bit. So early on, I thought we're, we were a niche player, maybe to be hooked onto some larger software at some point in the future, and, and maybe that will happen. But what we see now is that the world has changed tremendously and employer relations is and really should be its own category. It has to be given the current work climate the complexities of our global economy, the changing role of the empowered employee. Employee relations is its category, similar to how customer success has evolved into its own category over the past few years. And through our thought leadership and our technology leadership with the employee relations community, I am confident that HR Acuity is going to be leading that category. Oh, that's awesome. Deb, there are some entrepreneurs who are listening to this podcast what advice would you give them, especially those who bootstrap their companies? So believe in what you're doing and in yourself to get it done and don't overthink things. You don't have to know how to do everything. I often think about early on, if I had researched how to stand up an enterprise technology solution, kind of thought about, well, what infrastructure do I need? What about security? Remember, I had no tech background. I would have run away so fast. I mean, I would have just said, well, that's for somebody else to do. How can I do that? Because I knew virtually nothing about technology except what I knew as an end user. 
But if you're self-aware of what you don't know and you're savvy enough to get the right people to help you, and quite frankly, you say goodbye quickly to those who are not helping you, you're going to be okay. The other thing is to just do it. You know, one of the things that I think has helped me on my journey is that I have a tremendous bias for action. Now, this can be good. It can also be bad. Just ask my husband. But with the bias for action, you also have to be willing to admit when something isn't working and then just pivot, move on and let it go. Thank you, Deb. It was great. Thanks for having me.